Hi, welcome to Bookie, which unlock big ideas from world bestsellers in audio, text, and mind map. Please download Bookie at Apple Store or Google Play with more features. Get your free mind snack now. Today we will unlock the book Ghosts of the Tsunami. A massive 9.0 magnitude earthquake hit Japan at around 2.46 p.m. on March 11, 2011. It was the biggest earthquake ever known to have struck Japan. It shocked the world by setting off the meltdown of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, the world's worst atomic accident since Chernobyl. The earthquake sent a tsunami inland which took the lives of around 18,000 people. It was Japan's greatest crisis since the Second World War and ended the career of the Prime Minister. Towns were flooded and cars were lifted by huge waves and dropped onto the roofs of high buildings. Ocean-going iron ships were also deposited in city streets. The losses caused by the earthquake and the tsunami are uncountable. Yet there was one particular statistic that grabbed the public's attention. 75 children in Japan died in this tsunami in the care of their teachers. 74 of them perished in just one place, the Okawa Primary School. We cannot help but ask why. In countries like Japan with frequent earthquakes, Schools must have established comprehensive precaution systems and plenty of experience in disaster prevention. So how did so many children die at the same school? What took place there before the tsunami swept inland? What led to this tragedy? Was it a natural disaster or a man-made catastrophe? Ghosts of the Tsunami by Richard Lloyd Perry focuses on these questions. It is based on research and interviews with local survivors to search out the truth. Perry was not only concerned with why these children lost their lives, but also keen on presenting the status of the survivors. What had they lost after the disaster? What had they gained? What encounters and changes have they had? You will be able to feel the turbulent currents of these events in between this book's lines. Some of these are hidden in the dark side of the seemingly obedient and peaceful society of Japan. Richard Lloyd Perry is a British author and renowned foreign correspondent. He is the Asia editor and Tokyo bureau chief of the Times of London. Focusing on Japanese social issues, Perry is a prolific writer of books and articles. He has been living in Japan for more than 20 years and has settled in Tokyo since 1995. The book Ghosts of the Tsunami won him the Folio Prize in 2018. The Guardian praised it as a future classic of disaster journalism and it was also named one of the best books of 2017 by Amazon. In today's bookie, we are going to uncover the reasons for this disaster as well as the ghosts that hide beneath the exquisite surface of Japanese society from the following four perspectives. Part 1. What happened at Okawa Primary School after the earthquake? Part 2. Status of parents after the disaster. Part 3. The Okawa tragedy is both a natural and man-made disaster. Part 4, Japanese social problems revealed by the disaster. Let's rewind to the afternoon of March 11, 2011. It was half past two. As usual, lessons at Okawa Primary School finished at this time. In about 10 to 15 minutes, the children would have left school and gone home by school bus. At 2.45 p.m., some pupils were already seated on the school bus. However, the incident that followed stopped them from going home. One minute later, at 2.46 p.m., the shaking began. 
It was incredibly strong. Teachers began evacuating the children, and within five minutes, all the kids were gathered in the playground. They put on their plastic helmets and lined up in their classrooms. Overall, everything at school was in order though a bit flurried. Okawa Primary was designated an official evacuation place for the area. Therefore, the headmen of Kamaya also brought some local people to be sheltered in the school. Parents also began arriving to pick up their children. By chance, Teruyuki Kashiba, the headmaster of Okawa Primary School was off work that Friday afternoon, so Toshia Ishizaka the deputy headmaster oversaw the evacuation. Three minutes after the earthquake, the Japan Meteorological Agency started to repeatedly broadcast the tsunami warning. It estimated the height of the imminent tsunami to be 20 feet. It was Ishizaka who was listening to the battery-powered radio on which the tsunami warning was broadcasted repeatedly. At 3.14 p.m., the Meteorological Agency updated its warning, that tsunami was expected to come in at the height of 10 meters or 33 feet. Eleven minutes later, a van with a loudspeaker drove around the school, broadcasting warning of a super tsunami coming in from the sea. Meanwhile the aftershocks continued, and Ishizaka did not issue any orders for evacuation. Junji Endo the head of teaching recalled that he had asked Ishizaka the deputy headmaster to run to the hill. Yet, Ishizaka told him that the children couldn't climb up the hill due to the shaking. But Amane Yukitsu, one of the survivors from the sixth year recalled a much more dramatic intervention. She was picked up by her mother from school immediately after the earthquake. Before that, she was waiting for evacuation with her schoolmates in the playground. She remembered that Endo, the head of teaching came out of the school building, calling out loudly to the students to run to the hill. His call was picked up by two boys from the sixth year, Daisuke Kono and Yuki Sato who attempted to run to the school's back hill. But the two boys were ordered to come back by their sixth year head teacher. After they returned, they repeatedly urged the teacher to run to the back hill of the school. If not, they said, they might drown in the tsunami or the ground might split open and swallow them up. But their appeals received no response from the teachers. At that moment, in the playground of Okawa Primary School, groups of people were beginning to gather. There were teachers, students, parents, and other local people. The chaos was adding up. Ishizaka the deputy headmaster was discussing with some local people on how to evacuate. Teachers and parents were arguing if going home or staying at the school was safer. Children were listening to the fight between Ishizaka and the headman of Kamaya on whether or not they should climb up the hills. Meanwhile, the tsunami was moving across the landscape. The flood was in black or brown with white spray as if it is alive, an animal hungrily bounding over the earth. It stank of brine, mud and seaweed. It collided with and digested the human world's stuff, the crunch and squeal of wood and concrete, metal and tile. Within a few seconds, houses had broken up and disappeared. It was as if villages and whole towns were being placed inside the jaws of a giant compressor and instantly crushed. One of the survivors Tetsuya Tadano recalled that Ishizaka the deputy headmaster had been absent from the playground for a while and suddenly reappeared. He called out that the tsunami was coming and ordered everyone to evacuate to a place less than 400 yards away. Tetsuya a senior student was at the front of the group. Suddenly, 
he saw a sheet of white spray above a black mass of water, rushing along the main road ahead of him. He turned at once and ran back the way they had come. Some children followed him, but the rest still ran in the original direction toward the tsunami. When Tetsuya found himself at the foot of the hill, he realized it was the slope's steepest section. However, at that moment, he knew he had no choice, he had to climb up. At 3.37 p.m., 51 minutes after the earthquake, the tsunami swept over Okawa Primary School. It was the final moment for teachers and students. Endo the head of teaching began shouting at students to climb up the hill. But it was too late. In a tsunami, height determines safety. But to climb up to a higher place is not as easy as we imagine. When Tetsuya was scrambling up the steepest slope of the hill, the tsunami's dark waves were also rising behind him. Soon it was at his feet, his calves, his buttocks, and his back. He felt the massive force of gravity pressing on him, and he struggled for breath. Before his senses failed him, he climbed up the hill, blinded by mud, and was soon overcome by profound exhaustion. Kohei was Tetsuya's schoolmate. His life had been saved in another way. He couldn't climb up the hill. Instead, he was washed away by the water. In a stroke of luck, as he thrashed in the water, a household refrigerator had floated past with its door open. Kohei squirmed into it and rode it like a boat. Even more fortunate, he and the fridge were dumped by the waves toward Tetsuya. After the two boys united, they helped each other and continued to climb upwards until they met some adult survivors. In the end, 14 people gathered around the fire to spend a cold night. These people were saved because they were able to climb up to the hill. They survived so that we now can know their stories. But how about those children who were not able to climb up to a higher place before the tsunami came? How did it feel to be thrashed in a whirlpool? It is hard to imagine such an experience for people who have never been through a tsunami. Perry therefore interviewed a man named Hitomi Kono who survived the deadly waves. Kono described that when the water surged, he was in his office. The large plate glass windows had broken under the pressure of the wave. He then tumbled through open air into the water outside. It was churning and raging with violent internal motion. Kono described it as like being in a washing machine. He was aware of having been forced down and up and down again. Finally, Kono propelled himself upwards and broke the surface. He cast around for something to hold on to. At first, he caught hold of a wide wooden panel of about six feet by three. Gripping this, he was able to drift steadily on the water, propelled by waves. A while later, he pulled himself up onto a wooden house roof, which then began to move. As his raft spun on the water, Kono became aware of the cold and his extreme exhaustion. He swung between despair and hope until the floating roof edged towards a friend's house up the slope of a hill. Finally, he was saved by his friend. We have to say that Kono was fortunate. But how about the children at Okawa Primary School? They might have experienced similar struggles just as Kono had. Or maybe more. But no one will ever know about their feelings and pain now. As the tsunami raged, the mothers of the school children were not aware of what was happening at the school. Perry interviewed a housewife named Sayomi Shido. At home, she found her wooden house intact after the earthquake. She guessed that the concrete school which was built more strongly would naturally encounter no problems too. 
She simply waited for the school bus to bring her daughter Chisato back. However, her daughter did not show up. Some parents got anxious, so they decided to have a look at the school. Only when they got there did they realize that their children were still missing. When the tsunami subsided, local villagers started to search for the missing children. Legs and arms of children stuck out from under the mud and the rubbish. The bodies of the children laid on top of one another where they met their end by the retreating wave. Silk came out of their mouths, noses, ears and eyes. Soon, some parents joined the search too. Then came the police, and later soldiers of the Japan Self-Defense Forces. But the longer the search for the children went on, the more the scale of the task that lied ahead became clear. The children's bodies were found all around. By the end of March, around 30 of the 74 missing children had not been found yet. A fortnight later, there were still 10 missing. At the end of April, 6 were still missing, and by the end of May, only one more had been located. The soldiers extended their search zone larger and larger. New units rotated in and out from all over the country. In June, the self-defense forces gradually withdrew, and the search operation shrank to a single team of policemen and some parents. There was a mom named Naomi Hiratsuka who even participated in a training course on the operation of earth-moving equipment. She borrowed a digger to search for her daughter immediately after she got the license. The remains of her daughter were ultimately found in August, with no arms, no legs, and no head. Today we are just sharing limited content. To unlock more key insights of world-class bestseller please download our app. Just search for B-O-O-K-E-Y at Apple Store or Google Play. Get your free mind snack now.